Kraft has said one sixth out of every dollar that they sell is SNAP related. So these are very important issues and these are very important sources of funding for these companies. And you even see it in their SEC filings. If there's rumbling of cutbacks to SNAP, they have to put that as, as a risk to their business. On September 28th, for the first time in 50 years, the White House held a conference on food, nutrition, and health. This year's conference happened as millions of families across the country continue to struggle to access high-quality calories. In 2021 alone, 13.5 million households were food insecure. And in June of this year, more than 24 million Americans reported that they sometimes or often did not have enough to eat during the week. Why do so many families struggle with food insecurity in this country? And why, after 50 years of solutions like SNAP, food banks, and Feeding America, has this problem only gotten worse? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. This episode is a part of our series on America's relationship with food and food insecurity and the resulting impact on all of us, particularly our most vulnerable communities. Today, I'm joined by Andy Fisher, a leading activist in the food industry, to talk about his book, Big Hunger, and how his work in addressing hunger and food insecurity has revealed a much larger problem in this country. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to talk to you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're doing, as you probably know, a series on food right now and food insecurity. I was really interested to come across your book, Big Hunger. Just in terms of setting the stage here, could you talk a little bit about why you decided to write that book? Sure. So my background is, is that I co-founded and I ran a group called the Community Food Security Coalition, which was from 94 to about 2011. And it was the primary national coalition, national alliance of groups working on food access and local food systems. During that time period, I spent a lot of time trying to convince anti-hunger groups to care about where their food came from and to focus on a prevention model rather than a treatment model to, to mm -hmm. food insecurity, as well as to kind of focus on kind of community assets and community resources. And I got very frustrated. I saw a lot of success, I should say. I, you shouldn't be totally negative about it. I saw a lot of success and a lot of folks moving what I, in what I felt was the right direction. But I also saw, you know, groups like you'd have the primary national anti-hunger conference in DC, and you'd have the, the executive vice president of a company that pays its workers very low wages, pretending to be somebody who's solving hunger rather than somebody who's paying people very low wages. Right. And you talk about what you would want to see the industry do, the anti-hunger industry, the food and security industry, the folks who are trying to solve for that, or like, like you're saying, are they treating it more than solving for it, is to really focus on three other pillars, which are healthcare, housing, and wages. And I'm wondering if you could talk about why those three things are the key to solving for food insecurity long term. Sure. So, I mean, first off, wages are just are, are a no brainer. The minimum wage at the federal level is still seven and a quarter. People haven't. It's been that way since 2009. I work for an organization in Santa Cruz that we set our minimum wage at twenty seven fifty an hour because that's what the MIT living wage calculator sets. So, but you're not going to get that working at McDonald's. You're not going to get that, you know, working at Walmart or, or many places, many service sector jobs. The vast majority of income that people have is from wages. So we, we are a low-wage nation. I think we have to be very clear about that. 
And then along those lines is healthcare. We don't have universal healthcare. Medical bills are the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country. So people get, you know, get hit with, you know, a multi-thousand dollar bill from having an accident or what have you. And that, that sets them back dramatically. And then people are having to make decisions between buying medicine for grandma and providing food for her. And then finally, housing. I mean, the cost of housing is astronomical in Boston. I know this on the West Coast. And people are spending, you know, far beyond the, the recommended third of their income on housing. In some cases, it's 50, 60, 70 percent. So it leaves them very little money for food. And, you know, and obviously people have one wallet with which to buy food and housing and medicine and transportation and clothing and their cell phone. So if you squeeze people on one place, they're going to, you know, food is the most malleable place where, where they're going to cut costs. Right. And can we just talk, I just want to talk about the other side of the coin before we drill into the points that you just made. On the other side of the coin, we have food banks and what is called the emergency food system, which is supported by Feeding America. And there are, what, 900 outlets here in in Massachusetts. Yeah, there's 200 food banks across the country and 60,000 kind of retail units like food pantries and soup kitchens. So these are the systems, maybe you could talk about why they were set up in the first place. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the relationship between Walmart and other big food providers and the food banks, and then what the food banks are actually, how did they start? Why did they start? What was the purpose? And, and what are they actually doing today? Sure. So let me let, yeah, let me let me start with the history, and then you can interrupt me and, and keep on going. So the first food bank was founded in, uh, in the late 60s by a man named Johan van Hengel in Phoenix, who was going through a tough time in his life and dedicated his his energies towards providing kind of a one-stop shop for extra food to be donated to the poor. That model continued, it grew slightly in the 1970s, but not a lot. Feeding America, which was then called a Second Harvest, was established in Chicago in the, in the 70s. When it really took off was when Reagan came into power in 1981. So what you saw at that time was high unemployment, a recession, and you saw the Reagan administration wanting to cut back on the food stamp program. So it was kind of a perfect storm. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, which was one of the epicenters of the steel industry. And 1981 was when the bottom fell out of Youngstown, when the steel mills closed down and and the like. So what you saw in places like Youngstown and other places were people using this model of food banks. And the food bank became a central warehouse where it was it facilitated donations from various processors and manufacturers and retailers to provide food and then that food that would then get distributed you know to your local church which is the model 60 70% of food pantries go through religious institutions if you talk to people who worked at that time they will say you know we did not intend for this system to continue 40 years later. This was a stopgap. It was the emergency food system because we had this social emergency of a recession, of governmental cutbacks, of austerity programs, and we're just trying to take care of our people, right? Mm-hmm. We have these laid off steel workers. We have all this, you know, folks who are who don't have a job. They don't have a, a safety net, a strongest safety net under them as they used to. And we're gonna help them out and we're gonna give them some food that we get donated from local community groups, local community businesses who are being supportive and add extra. And we're going to help them through this crisis. And in a few years, we're going to go back to normal. That was the vision. And back to normal means that the food insecurity was not as big a problem? 
Yeah, they weren't measuring food insecurity at the time, let's say hunger, but sure, that, that where food insecurity wasn't as bad a problem, where unemployment would be reduced and where perhaps even government programs would be strengthened again. There's a, there's a, a woman named Jan Poppendiek who taught at Hunter College in New York City who wrote a fantastic book called Sweet Charity. And what she identified, and this was in the late 90s, she identified throughout the 80s and 90s was that this sector worked really well. It not just worked so well for the, you know, for the individual recipient, but it worked well for the volunteers who found a place where they could dedicate their energies. It worked well for the retailers because now they can now get a tax deduction and they could get, you know, get good public relations, positive public relations off of it. It worked well for the churches. It worked well for everybody. It, it was kind of a win-win-win for everybody, which is great, which is fine. I mean, it became one of the largest civil society sectors in America. You know, at some levels, it's, it's incredibly positive and it's a, an incredible testament to our goodwill and our charity as a, as a population. Absolutely. The country just held, for the first time in 50 years, a conference on food, nutrition, and health. And I'm wondering if you just, you probably know the numbers much better than I do. How are we doing 50 years later? Have we made a dent with all of this infrastructure that we've built over the past 50 years? The USDA started measuring food insecurity instead of hunger in 1995. So it's been 27 years, 26 years of data. And when they started measuring food insecurity, the terms were a little bit different, but it was basically 12% of the population was food insecure. We're down at 10 point something percent now. It goes up and down with the, with the economy. And it just crossed that 12% threshold, I think, in like 2018, perhaps. So uh -huh. all during that time period, yes, it went down a little bit. But, you know, if you look at that 26-year time period, we're treading water, really, than making a lot of progress. So we haven't found, we definitely haven't found the magic bullet yet. And what your book does is identify some of the issues where, you know, we're just kind of by nature in this country are incentivized to take advantage of opportunities. And in this case, there's a lot of opportunity to push a lot of food through the food bank system, but not necessarily to solve for poverty or food insecurity. So can I, tell, can I just tell a quick story? Yeah, of course. So when I was writing this book, it was about eight or nine years ago. I have two kids. My oldest, his name is Orion. He was in third grade at the time, and he came home, right? This was right before the holidays. He came home very, very excited because there's going to be a food drive in his class, and it's a competition between his class and all the other classes in his school. And the, this, the class that raised the most money and got the most pounds would get a pizza party. So perfect, right? Perfect thing for a third grader, right? And so he's like scouring the cupboard. And this kid is really analytical. This kid, he's scouring the cupboard looking for the heaviest food. So, you know, he take, we give him a few cans, he takes them, a week or two passes by, it's a deadline for the food drive. He comes back home again from school and says, dad, dad, you're going shopping, right? Can you get me some heavy food? I'm going, oh my God. <laughs> so I'm at the grocery store thinking about what do I get my kid? And I go, oh, well, soda's really heavy. I could get him a two liter bottle of Pepsi. And that weighs a lot. I, could, I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do that. So I got him some cans of beans that were on sale. But while I'm sitting there shopping, I'm realizing that Orion's food drive is, is kind of a microcosm of the problems with emergency food system and how they measure success. So they measure it by pounds and people. Again, so it's not like 
You know, those are in, in the nonprofit parlance, those are outputs, they're not outcomes. You're not measuring people leaving poverty, you're no longer hungry. All you're measuring is what you put through the system. The more you do, the more you appear to be successful. Whereas and the truth is you're just creating reliance and dependence upon a system that isn't very sustainable in the first place. That's a great story. It completely clarifies what I think also is the issue based on the work that we've done here for several years, kind of trying to figure out where can we help plug gaps. Can we go back to wages? And wages are particularly interesting to me right now because the pandemic, we're, we're now kind of through this point where jobs fell off of the charts and people were not employed. And now we have this, you know, we have way more jobs than we do have people working, which has pushed wages up just by the nature of economics. And so I'm wondering what you think about that. Has that helped at all? I don't know if we're learning anything from the labor market. If I can reel this back a couple of years, you know, in 2020 and 2021, what we saw were government programs that like child tax credits and pandemic payments and unemployment bonuses of $400 a week, all of those things made a huge amount of difference in the food insecurity rates. We have done some experimentation with guaranteed income and giving cash to people and trusting them. And we're very bullish on the idea of trusting folks. And I wonder if you if you were to just think about, you know, things like SNAP and WIC and other supports come with a lot of labor. They come with a, it's a lot, a lot of intensive costs in getting people the food that they need. There's lobbying involved in SNAP and WIC. And so big food is very involved there as well. What would you think about, how would you react to the government just giving cash to people? You know, that, that's, that's an age-old debate in the anti-hunger community. Folks are of two minds. And the first one is that cash confers trust. It can, it's the way that most industrialized countries or almost every industrialized country provides social assistance. The U.S. is the only country that I know of, at least in, in, you know, in the OECD realm, that has 15 nutrition programs. It's this crazy quilt work of programs that are more designed to support the industry than they are necessarily to support the individual recipient. You know, cash is king. Cash is confers trust. People, you know, always want to, you know, give folks cash again because it, it enables them to do with it what they want to do with it. And you don't find these crazy situations where somebody's selling their food stamps so they can buy soap or toilet paper or, or pay their electric bill or what have you. On the other hand, anti-hunger advocates will tell you that there's no way that they would ever want to cash out those programs because they're much easier to cut. And then because you lose core lobbying partners in the in the grocery and food industry from that process. Explain the core lobbying partners piece of it. If you were to put these as, if you were to say there's $120 billion in federal food programs, which is probably not all that far off right now, and say we're just going to give the states this money, like a block grant. We're going to give the states this money and the states will then distribute it to individual people who qualify. Yeah. That is a lot easier to go, oh, well, next year we're going to drop that by 3% and the next year we're going to drop that by another 3%. So eventually you're you're losing ground. And the, also the core element of the SNAP program in particular, the core one of the core values of it is, it's, is that it's counter-cyclical. So it's an entitlement program. So in other words, if you meet the guidelines for it, the income guidelines for it, you have a legal right to get that program. 
So when unemployment goes up, SNAP's going to go up as well. So if you're just to cash it out, you would lose that counter cyclical kind of anti-recessionary nature of the program that would support people during tough times. The other issue is that if you look at lobbying records from Congress, you find that the SNAP program is one that food retailers and processors are very active in lobbying. Well, because it's going straight into their pockets, right? So, and and, and yeah. it's a very important part of it. You know, Walmart redeems twenty plus billion dollars of SNAP. Kraft has said one sixth out of every dollar that they sell is is SNAP related. So these are these are very important issues, and these are these are very important sources of funding for these companies. And you even see it in their SEC filings if there's rumbling of cutbacks to SNAP, they have to put that as as a risk to their business in those filings. So it's it's a big prop for them. I won't call it a subsidy, but it's a big prop for those companies. It's interesting. And I have heard economists who have worked in different Democratic White Houses say that the reason that we have so many different social support programs like you described is so that it's more difficult to get rid of them. I just I wonder about that because you think about something like Social Security and the reason it's so difficult to get rid of is because everyone gets it. And so you have it, right? You have this huge compelling force of, of people. If we're talking about 24 million Americans who this year reported that they often don't have enough to eat during the week, that's a huge number of Americans who could be to lobby for supporting themselves. So what, what do you think about that? And that is, and that's kind of one of my core frustrations with mm-hmm. with the food banking community is you have 40 million people or more who go through food pantries food banks every year you know and then you have another 50 million 70 million people who probably volunteer or donate to a food bank so you've got a half a third of this country that is engaged in the emergency food sector in some way or another it's a, a potentially an enormous political force yet food banks don't dedicate very much money into public policy advocacy. And when they do, it's to kind of a very narrow selection of those programs. It's what's called TFAP, which is government commodities going into food banks. It's for the SNAP program. It's what I call the nutrition safety zone. They don't go outside of that nutrition safety zone into kind of the root causes of poverty, whether it's wages or racism or or sexism or other issues that are really driving people into poverty and needing food banks in the first place. They don't do it because for lots of reasons, because their donate their coalition, the people who come who donate to them are of all political stripes. Their boards tend to be heavily dominated by the very executives who work at the food corporations that donate food to them and who are, you know, conservative and don't want to see labor costs go up, uh, especially in the grocery sector. They haven't defined their work that way. They've defined their work kind of as a human services, social services sector, rather than as an advocacy groups. And you're seeing that changing a little bit. And some food banks are better than others at dedicating those resources. But by and large, it's this enormous untapped potential. Yeah, I agree with you. The food bank heads that I know have all said to me at one time or another, maybe more than once, and they say it in public all the time, that they wish that they could be out of a job, that they would love to put themselves out of a job. And yet what they're doing is running these big behemoth centers that hold tonnage of food. And they and on, they also bring in quite a bit of cash. Why do we need these behemoth 
buildings holding tons of food when, you know, we could enable people to just go to their local bodega or food store? And why aren't they, if they really want to put themselves out of business, what's, why aren't they executing those sorts of strategies? Well, or why are they? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've been doing some research on food bank finances from before the pandemic and during the pandemic and found that between 2019 and 2021, the amount of cash that food banks collectively, those 200 food banks are holding, it's about $2 billion more. And their net assets grew by about $4 billion over that time period. So over double, they more than doubled their net assets in that two-year period, which I, I'd love to be able to do that personally. That'd be wonderful, right? What you saw, I mean, we can kind of try dissect why that happened. What I'm seeing is a lot of buying of bigger buildings. The Atlanta Food Bank now has a 350,000 square foot warehouse, whereas it had a beautifully, uh, a really nice one before. And, you know, Houston's developing a second warehouse with land donated from Chevron. You're seeing a lot more purchases of trucks and other equipment so that they continue to expand their donations. So the line about we're trying to put ourselves out of business is not held up by their actions. Their actions would belie that. And again, I think that's because they're seeing, they're defining their success in terms of the size of their operations. People certainly are struggling and, you know, appreciate getting a box of food from the food pantry, but that's not the, the driving factor behind behind food banking, the driving factor is supply. And we have a surplus of supply. So let me give you one example. So a friend of mine runs a food bank in, in Rochester. It's called Foodlink. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was talking to her and again in the research for my book. And she says, look, even if I went out of business tomorrow, I said, I'm done. I don't believe this anymore. Another organization is going to pop up and they're going to do what I'm doing. And they're not going to do it as well. And they're going to do it because there's, there's excess in the system. So it's because... A, Americans find it so morally unpreferable, so morally disgusting to waste food that people feel like they've been trained that, you know, food waste needs to go to hungry people. There's been this conflation of food waste and hunger. And secondly, it's because the nature of capitalism is that there's overproduction. Again, just a little micro example, you go into your grocery store at 11 o'clock at night, an hour before it's closing, you're going to get a birthday cake for your for your son for the next day and or your daughter. And you want to have a choice, right? You want a choice between chocolate, vanilla and strawberry. Well, if there's only a vanilla cake there, you're going to feel cheated and bummed out, right? So, so supermarkets will overproduce because labor is cheap because the wheat and all the other food items are cheap because we devalue them for a lot of different reasons. And so it's easier and cheaper for them to have those three cakes on the shelf at, when they're at closing time than to produce just to the right amount. And then they can donate that food to the food bank. They can get a tax deduction. They can make themselves feel good. They can tout that in their public relations, in their press feed. And they come off as a winner and they don't have to implement those difficult processes to reduce waste in the system. Right. Because waste, it sounds like waste is part of the business model, but it, the business, the waste has been solved for by this outlet. Yeah. If you go into a food pantry, you'll find lots of pastries. You'll find lots of birthday cakes. It's not like people need, yes, occasionally you want a birthday cake for your kid if you're poor, right? And you can't afford it. That's a, a wonderful, heartwarming thing to find. But do you really need it every time you're there? Right. 
Right, right. Well, especially with so much disease in this country, uh, when we were doing surveys of folks during the pandemic uh, in terms of what they were getting from food banks, I was always struck by, in particular, by one grandmother who, who SNAP combined with her food bank box was feeding not only her, but her daughter and her grandchildren. And she would feed all of them. She was diabetic. And what kind of was left with her for her at the end of a particular day was a banana, which was not great for her illness. And so I'm wondering, do you see glimmers of hope in your conversations with food banks? And how come there is no backlash on Big food. There never seems to be backlash on big food. We we did a ton of work in the Boston Public Schools, and man, big food wins all the time. It's crazy. Hmm. It is interesting. Prior to the pandemic, there was a lot of change, and there was a, a growing field of, of certainly getting better quality food into the emergency food system. A lot mm-hmm. more produce was flowing through the system. Many more food banks were actually banning soda or banning candy from that. It didn't really solve the problem. It kind of diverted the problem to a different food bank, but at least within their confines, you know, you couldn't get a Coke anymore. They were establishing nutrition policies, I guess, as as part of that. That changed to some degree with the pandemic, where the model of distribution changed back to kind of the 80s and 90s, where it was, you know, the cars lined up and just give people a bag of groceries rather than having them go through kind of a supermarket choice pantry type of style where you could pick what you wanted, you know, out of out of what they had. So food banks are finding that model much more efficient, and that is a huge issue for them, you know, how many pounds they can distribute for the amount of dollars that they have. So that model is, unfortunately, we're, we're kind of back to the future, or back to the 80s, I guess. And so we're seeing a number of different food banks around the country that they're undercutting or throwing their social justice work out the window. In Tucson, Arizona, that's a great example, unfortunately, of a food bank that was perhaps the most progressive in the country and doing lots of community organizing work and actively trying to reduce its food distribution where new leadership came in and a lot of those folks who were pushing that are gone now. So it's unfortunate. So... What you do see, and I, I need to talk to Feeding America, uh, but what you do, what I do hear from Feeding America is that actually they're ahead of the curve. They're wanting to kind of dedicate more resources into poverty reduction uh, rather than hmm. just hunger reduction. But whether they're able to pull their 200 food bank members along along the way is, is yet to be seen. Why? What's motivating them to change? It's a leadership issue. They have a new CEO, a relatively new CEO, who gets it and hired some of the right people into the positions and and seeing the writing on the wall and moving that direction. Interesting. But will there be support for an organization like Feeding America to shift and actually tackle things like wages and healthcare and housing? You know, there if you look at the letter that they or their their report that they submitted to the White House conference, mm-hmm. They didn't include explicitly, you know, calls for higher minimum wage or calls for universal health care, any of that kind of stuff. They that what they do is they identify wages as an issue, but they don't include recommendations because mm-hmm. I think they're still fearful of, of alienating their corporate partners. Right. Yeah. So let me ask you this question then in closing, because you know more about this than anyone else I've talked to. If you were king for a day. And you could, you could just make the changes that you wanted to make, and it would all play out the way that you wanted to play out. What are the levers that you would pull to make things better? 
if I was going to just choose three levers, I think you, I think you, you mentioned them, and I think I'm just going to go with that. I think I'm going to go with living wages, universal health care. Yeah, and I don't I don't know how to do this last one because I'm not, this isn't my thing, but I I I just see housing is such a huge issue. The homelessness problem is is ginormous on the West Coast, so I'm sure it is on the East Coast. The affordability is just brutal. I mean, it's infrastructure, transportation, but it's also nimbyism, right? It's it's that yes. right. We we it is we, it yeah. is yeah it's yeah especially here in California. There's you know quality of Everywhere. life issues and yeah absolutely well so nice to talk with you today andy thank you very much yeah likewise i appreciate the time thank you for listening to my conversation with andy fisher andy has spent his career fighting against corporate influence on our food system and advocating for long overdue solutions to the underlying social determinants of health if you'd like to read more about andy's work in his book big hunger check out the link in our blog at shopfoundation.org. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.